welcome to the Girls Who Run the World podcast, where we're bringing you inspiring guests who are leaders in their industries. We'll be tackling topics from education and empowerment to diversity and inclusion. Together, let's learn from these incredible women. This podcast is brought to you by Our Gorongoza. We create specialty coffee with 100% of profits supporting people, wildlife, and the planet in Gorongoza National Park, Mozambique. Girls' education is one of our biggest priorities because we know girls have the power to change the world. Just like Beyonce said, who runs the world? Girls! Hello and welcome back to the Girls Who Run the World podcast. I'm your host, Emily, and I'm thrilled to have you joining us here today. As always, we love to see you sharing on social media. Please tag us at our Gorongoza and also share this with any friends who you know would find it valuable. This is how we can reach more women and keep getting these messages out there. So thank you. We truly appreciate it. So before we get to episode 30, featuring Michaela Kiner, founder and CEO of Reverb, I wanted to share a couple very exciting things happening in the Argorangosa world. First of all, we won our very first award, which is incredible. We are officially award-winning coffee. It's amazing. And this award was the Kehi On Trend Award for the best mission-based brand, which as you know, is exactly what we are. So we are thrilled to be recognized for all the work that we are doing and the way that we are truly leading the way for other direct impact businesses and showing you that it is completely possible to have this sort of impact while having an amazing thriving business. So let's get to the other thing quickly, which was we have a new website coming, which is super, super exciting. We cannot wait to share it with you all, so be sure to stay tuned. Okay, let's get to it, episode 30 featuring Michaela Kiner. So Michaela is an experienced HR and people operations professional and executive coach, the founder and CEO of Reverb and published author. What a powerhouse. So for today's episode, you will learn all about Michaela's early career journey at really incredible top companies like Amazon, Starbucks, Microsoft. You may have heard of them. And what led her to ultimately founding Reverb People? We chat about the ever-changing workplace climate and how COVID and working from home has shifted priorities for people, how companies can ensure they are retaining top talent, and why she hasn't shied away from hiring part-time employees. That was really interesting to hear her perspective on that. We also talked about the ways in which companies can support parents and why that's so important. And lastly, we talked about why being able to identify the injustices women still face in the workplace is the imperative first step to really being able to make any significant changes. This interview was incredible. Michaela is truly, truly such a professional in her arena. And I'm so thrilled to share this with you. Let's get to it. Episode 30 featuring Michaela Kiner from Reverb People. Welcome to the show, Michaela. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited. My pleasure. So we're not going to waste any time. We're going to jump right into the good stuff. What are you most grateful for in your life right now? Oh my gosh. I have to say my kids and I know so many moms would say their kids, but My son is just uh, this week finishing up his second semester of uh, aviation school in North Dakota, and he's decided to transfer. So he'll be back at the end of the week, and then um, he'll be living near us in Seattle, which I'm so excited. I'm excited that he went and did his thing, and I'm also excited to have him back. And um, my daughter is a high school junior, so she has two more weeks. She's starting to try to think about college and they're just sweet and funny and supportive. And even though, you know, they are my kids, so yeah, they make fun of me and whatnot, but, um, yeah, they're just such a joy. I'm like, so grateful for them every time I think about them. Oh, I love that. I have a three-year-old, so I can relate. Although my child's doing much different things than yours are right now. (laughs) Well, yeah, my five-year-old niece, um, actually, I'm really lucky that they're at the playground. They've been staying with us um, from DC for this past week. And so it's actually been really fun, but 
the amount of energy. My, even my daughter's like, did I have that much energy? She's like, let's go to coffee. Let's go to lunch. Let's go to the climbing gym. Let's go swimming. Let's go to the playground. And I keep looking at her parents and asking, is she going to need a break or a nap? And they're just going, nope, like we are, but she's not. Uh, I can relate because my son's very active, but he still naps. So, you know, that's all right. (laughs) We'll take it. Lucky, lucky. What inspires you daily? So where do you draw inspiration from to keep growing your business, to be the incredible mom that you are? What inspires you? Yeah, I'm really inspired by my team. Um, It happens that we have a, a staff of 10, all women. It is not, you know, it's not by design. We welcome men, but I think women are just attracted to the environment and flexibility. They're just so kind and capable and efficient. We just got off. We do our um, staff and leadership calls um, Tuesday morning. So we just got done. And I, I must have said at least five times something where I was like, oh, we've been working on this or thinking about this for years and now it's done. This is amazing. And then I always feel like I suggested something like, oh, the team's working on something. We should do a demo. And they were like, yeah, actually we have that um, scheduled for next week. So I, I tell them, I'm like, you really um, don't need me. I don't know. I just kind of check in with people, but they're, you know, they're just an incredible group. And then um, we work with a lot of startups. And so there are a lot of just very caring and generous um, people, whether they're in the startup community, their advisors, the founders we work with, a lot of female founders in particular, you know, it's just, um, it's just a joy and I am continuously amazed by the work that people are doing, the um, creativity and innovation and how they juggle it. So lots of moms, lots of people, you know, caring for parents and then they're starting and running companies and they're all taking such good care of their teams. So they inspire me too many to name, but they really, uh, they really motivate me. Yes. It sounds like unsurprisingly, it's really boils down to people. (laughs) That's what inspires you which makes me think you're really in the right line of work, which I love. (laughs) (laughs) I have to agree with that. (laughs) What advice would you give your younger self if she would listen? I like to preface. Good point. I might've listened. You know, it's interesting. So I spent about 13 years in big companies that have um, just very intense work environments, not a lot of work-life balance. And I honestly would have encouraged myself, you know, just reflect on that, look around, consider whether there are places where you can have an equally good career and also have better balance. Cause I did a lot of 60 to 80 hour weeks, including when I had my kids. And I will tell you, no one in my life pulled me aside or said that to me, which I actually find kind of remarkable. Yeah. So that I definitely, I don't regret it because I learned so much through that. And I I think though I could have found, you know, some of the kind of balance I have now probably earlier in life. Yes. That is so wild to me as a mother of a young child to think about doing an 80 hour week. So I just, that makes me feel slightly nauseous. (laughs) How would you do that? You obviously did. And like you said, it's not to say you didn't get a lot of lessons from it, obviously. But I think that that speaks to kind of this bigger issue around not supporting mothers and this whole idea that the only way a company can be successful in general is to have 80 hour work weeks. I just don't believe that. I don't either. And I will say, I mean, for how do you do it is I had no hobbies for many years. I mean, my husband used to like, I didn't even read the New Yorker that showed up, you know, on my doorstep every week. And it was a standing joke that wherever we were on Friday night, even before kids, I would fall asleep. I mean, literally movies, symphony theater, I would just crash. So it's not really a good recipe um, for life, but I think you're right. You know, the other thing about it is I think I grew up it was just an assumption that if you're going to be a working mom, it has to involve a lot of sacrifice. And if I had to say it again, I'd say everything important involves an occasional sacrifice. You might occasionally, you know, have 
to work through dinner to meet a deadline, or you might occasionally um, stay home with a sick kid and miss a work deadline. And if that's rare and equally balanced, you know, I think it's perfectly fine. And that's, that's just normal. Um, but the rest of it, you know, the like really big sacrifice or when you really hear people talking about mom guilt and just, I don't feel like I'm giving enough to my kids or my job, I think is one of the saddest things I hear when I talk to women is that, and that no one should ever be made to feel that way or reach a point where they have to say that. I just think that's heartbreaking. Yes, absolutely. And for me, I think to just the fact that some women feel like they have to choose. I don't like that either. I think that it is possible to have somewhat of a harmony. I like to call it because I don't know about balance, so to speak, when you're a parent and working, but I think you can find some sort of harmony within it. And I love how you put it that occasionally you might be stretched. Occasionally you might, like you said, kind of miss something with your kids or miss something with work. But I feel strongly that there's some sort of kind of harmony that can be made there. It doesn't need to be that I see women who are delaying, 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 or not having children when they might actually want to, or on the flip side, feeling like they need to take a backseat with their career while they have children. And I just don't, that's where you get that huge gap for women where their peers who aren't having children get further and further ahead. And I don't like to see that either. Yeah. You know, I was once offered that when I was leaving a company and they, you know, it's called the mommy track and they didn't say that, but they kind of said, Oh, if it's because you need time with your kids, we can get creative or you can, you know, sort of leave on time instead of leaving at 7 PM. And I, um, I mean, I actually, it was the person uh, who offered me that was also a woman with children. And I felt like I could be frank with her. And I said, first of all, I've never seen that happen successfully at this company. So I'm not a big believer, right. That I could reduce my hours and still um, be seen as successful. And the idea of just working somewhere where that's the norm and the culture is so much more appealing than working somewhere where you feel like it's counterculture and it's, you know, you're getting special treatment and you have to constantly fight just to go home at the end of the day and not log back on for three more hours. So yeah, some, you know, some work still to be done. Although on the very positive side, I've seen so much progress in this area by certain companies, even before the pandemic and more, you know, during the pandemic, when this whole kind of light of working parents and especially working moms was brought more to light because it was, it was exacerbated by the challenges of school closure and lack of um, care providers. But frankly, it's really some of the same challenges that have been there all along. And people just finally began to um, take more notice and offer more support and resources. And in some cases really you know, modify and not just the expectation for parents, but for everyone. I always say, you know, what's good for working moms is good for humans because we all have boundaries. We all have, you know, we can get tired if it's not kids, you know, we might have friends and significant other or a hobby that we want to go do. And, you know, putting all of our energy into work, it doesn't even make us that much more productive or effective and we lose out on so much. Mm, Isn't that the truth? I agree. What's one mantra you like to live your life by? I have a funny mantra story. So I was um, really fortunate. I got certified in the dare to lead work by Brene Brown. And I got certified at a time when uh, she was actually there and taught the first day in person. In fact, she had to leave. She would usually have taught or been there for the whole course but she was leaving for her very first appearance on Oprah. This was a while ago, but we, um, we did something where we went around and shared mantras and the woman before me, her mantra was, I belong at the table. And I kind of just like forgot mine and stole hers because I thought it was so great. And literally, if you've been in an office environment where there are large meetings and some people are at the table and then there's overflow and people sit on the side you know, unless it was like my meeting or I was presenting, I was always, you know, I didn't even walk up to the table. I just walked up and sat on the side because I had been, I think taught that that was where I belonged. So 
you belong at the table is just such a powerful one for me. Mm, I love that one. I think it really kind of speaks to that imposter syndrome that so many people, unfortunately, I think disproportionately women face. So I love that one. I think it's that little reminder that you are meant to be there. You were hired for a reason. These are all the strengths you bring to the table. So you need to sit at it. (laughs) Yeah. And I think you're right. You know, um, white women, as well as people of color, basically anyone who is underrepresented or underestimated, you know, in an organization can be made to feel that way. And um, I have a couple of colleagues who have done some really amazing work around sort of renaming of imposter syndrome, because even the syndrome could imply that it's like, it's something I'm doing, or it's this feeling that kind of I have in my head versus it's based on so many messages that were given just over and over about where we do and don't belong and whether we are and aren't powerful. And um, yeah, I, I love your making that connection. I think you're so right. All of these things go hand in hand at the end of the day. Yes. Who or what has been your biggest teacher so far? Hmm, Who or what? You know, I work. I mean, I'm very passionate about work. And, you know, like you said, people, people's experience at work. And that really goes hand in hand with working in human resources and people operations. And I, I like to think I've learned you know, over the 15 years that I worked in corporate HR before going out on my own, I didn't realize, but I was observing everything about what do I like? What do I not like? What do I want to do and not want to do? And so in having the chance to create my own company, I really brought those lessons forward and just said, whatever I've seen and experienced that was really positive, I'm going to do, whether that's good communication, good business planning, recognizing and rewarding people, you know, running an efficient business. And I also learned a lot of the what not to do. And, you know, those are hard lessons, but I think having learned them and having seen, you know, trust people don't micromanage. I mean, obviously, well, I don't think anyone ever sets out to create a toxic culture, but they do exist and you see the negative impact. And so choosing to have a value like kindness, just like there's no tolerance for toxicity, politics or bureaucracy in my company. And I think if I hadn't personally experienced the negative outcome of some of those things, I might not have been as intentional about what I do and don't want to embrace in my own company and my own team. Mm -hmm. So really entrepreneurship is what what has taught you so much. That makes a lot of sense. (laughs) I would love to start by situating everyone listening with your early career journey. So what did that look like? And then what ultimately led you to founding Reverb People? Yeah. So I go way back because both of my parents are employment lawyers on the plaintiff side, which means they are the people who sue companies when wrong things happen, like harassment and discrimination. And so I truly grew up at the dinner table hearing that kind of story about the workplace and I am certain it planted these seeds about there's got to be a better way. Like people do not have to behave this way or tolerate this in organizations. Um, I took a very roundabout path. I went to school. I was interested in writing and literature and education and social work. And so that was what I studied during my undergrad. And then it was just kind of a, a coincidence. I ended up joining a startup coffee company in New York City they had stores in New York before there was Starbucks in New York, which makes me sound like I'm from the stone ages, but it was a while ago. And I was working with them and they said, you know, we're planning to expand. And they um, pulled me out of the day-to-day store operations and asked me to do all of the hiring and training as they opened 30 stores across three States. So that was my introduction to HR. And I thought, well, I should see if I like this. And so I took a not-for-credit college course and I really enjoyed it. And then I started grad school um, for HR management and I started part-time and then I just, I was very passionate about it. And so I was actually able to get a scholarship 
that allowed me to um, go back full time and take some summer courses and finish that program in two years. So that is that is my story of how I got into HR. I did a couple years in recruiting at that point. So both in healthcare and then in technology, I got my start at Microsoft. And then I always wanted to move from recruiting to HR because it's really two sides of the coin, right? Recruiting is how do we find people and get them in the door, and HR is everything that happens once they arrive. And I was uh, that I was just piqued by my curiosity. You know what happens to all these people after I hire them? Some of them I might be in touch with, but some I might never get to see or talk to again. And so I, I moved into HR, um, spent about five years doing HR for Microsoft Office, um, left Microsoft for Starbucks when my kids were. My youngest was only 10 months. So that less than a year, two kids with a commute, working mom, something had to give. So I had five months of maternity, five months back. And yeah, I just had to make a move. Um, Starbucks was only a 15 minute drive from my house. So we couldn't get over it because I'd call my husband and then I'd show up in 15 minutes instead of an hour. And he'd be like, I'm not, I can't believe you. Like, you're home. What happened? It was great. And Starbucks was, it was a very more, I'd say, family friendly and balanced, you know, than uh, working in tech. However, it was also a little, it was almost too balanced because I like to think once I got over just sort of being tired, which I was, I wanted more, you know, I'm just, I've always been career oriented. I like to solve problems and be like extremely challenged and that just wasn't happening, you know, with a particular department that I supported. So I made a move to Amazon, which I had actually, I had turned it down when I went to Starbucks. And then I, t- I talked to a friend and I'll never forget this because she emailed me and I had said kind of, what's it like? And I've heard it can be really long hours. And she wrote me and she said, you'll always feel challenged and you'll always feel respected. And I thought, well, I can't turn that down. You know, that sounds pretty great. So I spent uh, about three years in um, HR at Amazon in Seattle, and then I was really lucky. I had been raising my hand for an international assignment, and my boss called me in one day and said, hey, are you serious? Because we have an opportunity for someone to go to India. And I had been to India on a business trip, and I actually was really hoping I could get an assignment in India. Um, My kids were four and seven at the time. And so the whole family went and we spent three years in Hyderabad, which is in um, South India. And my kids went to school there and um, my husband couldn't work. He didn't have a work permit, but he is a teacher and an artist. And he volunteered at the kids school and he painted murals at orphanages and he taught music and he learned a lot of South Indian music. So it was actually funny because he learned a beautiful, very romantic Hindi song and he plays guitar. And there was a festival in our neighborhood not long before we were moving back. And he um, got up and he sang and my son played the tapla, which is an Indian drum. So they did this thing and all the middle-aged ladies like walked over to congratulate him at the end of the song. And then one of them came to me and they said, oh, your husband and your children have become so Indian. They must stay but we don't really know you because you're always at work. So you can go back to the U.S. And I was like, okay, I see where this is going. Um, That was an amazing, amazing career experience. I mean, if anyone is ever thinking about going abroad or doing an assignment, I so recommend it. It was just life-changing. And moving home 10,000 miles with a seven and 10-year-old and getting them back into school and getting back into work was exhausting. So um, I call myself a good expat statistic because the usual stat is that expats leave their company about six months after their return. I think mine was six months to the day. And (laughs) that's when I decided to work with startups. I had this sense that if I worked with a startup where the company was smaller and I was only responsible for one leadership team instead of multiple leadership teams, that I could actually have more control and better balance. So I, I think I might be the only person who ever went to a startup for better work-life balance, but it really proved true. So I worked at um, two startups as head of HR, and then um, I got certified as an executive coach. The same year I took my last corporate job and I, I love coaching. Um, I just feel like you get to see people grow before your eyes. And I knew it was something I wanted to do more of, and I wanted to build those skills. 
And I just stepped back and reflected and I thought, you know, if I stay in these HR leadership jobs, I'm not sure that I will ever have the time that I personally want to spend doing coaching. And that was really a prompt for me to start my own business. So I say there was a push. I really love HR. I wanted to do it um, with less bureaucracy and more of just in time what people need. And I wanted to coach. And so I went out on my own. I spent six months, just me, um, coaching and consulting, got some you know, great clients some people I had known in the past who had started their own companies. And then uh, a few months in, I had a colleague, she started messaging me on social media and it was things like, my team's really behind. Um, we need to do all our pay and performance work and I need so much help. I've got to get this done. Uh, and I said, well, no, thanks. I mean, I'm just one person, you know, that kind of sounds like a lot. And she said, just come and talk to me. And I went to talk to her and she's amazing. And the work was amazing. And it was a biotech company that was working on alternative cancer cures. And I thought I can either spend my life saying no to this kind of opportunity, or I can get some folks to come and work with me. And so that was the tipping point. I brought on a few consultants uh, who I knew from the past. Um, I personally worked on that engagement myself part-time for about nine months. And then as I rolled off, I just thought, well, what if I step away from the client-facing work and see if I can grow this little company, which is what I did. And um, it'll be seven years in August. We have 10 staff and about 65 consultants. The last two years in a row, we were named as one of the fastest growing privately held women-owned businesses in the state of Washington. And I have, it's the best job I've had. And it's, it's the most fun, you know, every single day, um, really more than anywhere I've ever worked. So I'm just, I'm so grateful that I can do this. You know, I think that's a theme among entrepreneurs is just, yeah, so glad that I had the opportunity I'm so glad my business is a services business because I tell people all I needed to start up was a laptop and a business card. Um, you don't really need, you, you need money to live on, but other than that, you don't need investment money to start a services company, which is fabulous. And um, yeah, it's, it's been good fun. What an incredible journey you've had. I have to say, so interesting. I love hearing this because I, I'm always interested in how all the pieces kind of came together. And I think for you, it's so clear that you really were able to create the exact culture that you were probably always seeking in these different companies and different arrangements. And probably didn't quite find it. So you thought, well, hey, I'm going to make it myself, <laughs> which I love. Totally. <laughs> yeah. And I hear that from a lot of women entrepreneurs as well. And I think there is something really interesting about the timing when we look at what's going on now with this great resignation or great reshuffle, because from the start, Reverb was a company where we have a lot of um, working moms and other caregivers because you can work full-time, you can work part-time, you can take a month off between assignments, you can take a summer off with your family and we have consultants who take advantage of all of those things. And what we found is that's now what more and more people are looking for during the pandemic. But we already had that work structure and that work culture. And so when we hear about so many companies, you know, can't find talent, can't hire enough people. The only thing preventing us from hiring enough people is our own capacity and the amount of time it takes to interview and onboard. But We've doubled the size of our HR consulting practice uh, over the past year, and we ha we always have an amazing pipeline of candidates. And I think it's because they can have the flexibility that, unfortunately, is still pretty hard to find almost anywhere else. And in particular, good, challenging, high-paying jobs for parents who want to work part-time. I just I can't believe that. I don't think those numbers have improved that much since I had my son 20 years ago, which is actually remarkable. Yeah, that's a bit shocking, isn't it? Because I've said this, so I'm pregnant again now. <gasps> Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so, you know, once you've done it once, you kind of examine like going on mat leave and all that. 
So really for me, interestingly, so I'm in Canada, so we get a long mat leave. You can be up to 18 months if you'd like. So I had planned to take a year and I will say it's really interesting because for me at around five months, I started to feel like I would like to be working, doing some work. I felt I would want that. I don't know if it'll be the exact same. I'm kind of going with, hopefully it is, but I wanted some of that stimulation. I love the work I do. I wanted to be back involved. And I think as many moms who are more recently postpartum can attest, you are typically lacking that adult conversation. And like I said, using those parts of my brain that I love to use. So I think there's such a huge miss when companies don't want to allow for that to happen, whether it's for, you know, the first three months back or whether it's just even a month to transition or whether that to your kind of point with your company, some women or other parents, men too, might want to take those years when their children are young and only work 25 hours a week. And that's not to say you can't do incredible work. I'm sure they're doing amazing work. Exactly. Yeah. And I have seen some companies moving more in this direction, letting people gradually ramp down before going, you know, before having a baby or gradually ramp back up, or maybe it's, you want to come part-time for a year or two. You know, I think if, if I had had part-time, even a four day a week schedule in each of my children's first year, I just think how much less hectic and kind of stressful my life would have been. And you're right. We, we lose out, you know, we talk about war for talent, war for talent. And we just, we just intentionally miss out on so many pools of capable people because we're unwilling to create flexibility at work for no particular reason, other than that's how we've always done it. So yeah, I agree. I think in particular in the early stages, you know, I think a lot more women would stay like you're saying, if maybe I just want to work part-time for a while. It's not that I don't want to work. I always, you know, wanted to work, but you know, did I want to work 60 hours with, you know, two kids, three and under not, not so much, you know, it's just not so great, you know, and who knows, maybe when they're both out of the house, maybe I'll want to work a lot more. They'll probably work on a lot of different things, you know, not just, not just one single thing. Mm, Absolutely. Something you brought up that I'm actually really curious to ask you about is this great resignation slash shuffle. So it's kind of been something that's been buzzing in the news, I would say a lot lately. And so I'm super curious to hear from a professional's point of view. What do you think is going on there? Would you say, yes, this is happening? What have you seen? Yeah, we definitely see it happening with some of our clients and peers. And I would say it can take many forms. So not everyone obviously has the luxury to just quit their job and not work. I think we hear a great resignation. We're kind of like, oh, like millions of people just stopped working. Well, they didn't stop. You know, maybe they went to pursue a job that is more of a passion for them. Maybe they left something that they were feeling mentally or physically exhausted to do something that feels less exhausting. I also, I do know people who have reduced to half time or moved to consulting or doing a year, you know, van life or something like that, like just pick up and and take a break. We definitely see it among chief people officers because we think of the stress and anxiety and all the complexity that came with the pandemic. Those individuals were navigating that for themselves and on behalf of their entire organization. And so we are seeing more burnout among people in those roles. So definitely taking breaks or stepping back or just saying, you know, I don't want that number one role. It just feels too hard in some cases, because if there isn't enough um, support and the right kind of resources for people, they just had so much thrown at them. Um, And then we see people, you know, doing career transition. I mean, maybe it was something that was in the back of their mind, or they thought, well, one day, and now that it's kind of, there's so much upheaval, it almost feels like, well, if if everything's up for grabs, what do I want to do? Do I, you know, people who moved sometimes without even telling their companies, right? Like I moved into my family's summer house or you get on a call and someone's like, oh, by the way, I moved to New York six months ago and you didn't know it because my background looks the same, you know? So yes, yes, we see it happening. 
I think, you know, again, those, uh, if, if companies are trying to be very conservative or traditional right now, requiring people to come to the office for no reason, do extensive commuting and travel for no reason, people are going to opt out because they're seeing that other companies are offering flexibility and won't require them to do these things that aren't really a meaningful part of their job. Personally, I just started working on this, but my daughter, my high school junior had thought of doing a gap year after college and then announced to me not that long ago that that is not the plan anymore. She's just going to plow through but I had gotten really excited. I had some ideas for this gap year. And I was like, oh, we can go learn Spanish and go to Costa Rica. So I'm starting to plan my own grown-up gap year after she graduates. And I'm going to go work remote for a year from Costa Rica and kind of test the waters there. Um, but you know, I started doing a little bit of research because I knew I'm not alone. And you know, more sabbaticals, adult gap year, grown-up gap year. I even saw a term of the gray gap year for people 50 plus. So these are the things that are catching on. And I think as people realize they can and want to do these things, companies need to you know, get more modern and update their policies and think, okay, well, what if someone on my team does come to me and say, I want to go away for a year? How do I structure it so that they can come back <laughs> you know, and rejoin when that gap year is over? And the, so that's my focus. Part of it is personal and then part of it is how can companies help people to embrace these things that are again like they're, again they're just better for humans you know before the pandemic i have uh, one team member and she just said gosh you know the seattle winters they're kind of hard my husband and i wish we could go work from bali and i said well why don't you i mean i don't know you talk to clients you write contracts like you can do that in bali and they did and um, i think they're planning to do it again or someone was like, gosh, my whole family and my niece and nephew are on the East Coast. I want to go work from Maine or go to Boston. And, you know, we've always had that approach anyway. That's, yeah, if you can do your work from wherever you are, go for it. And now that at least in our business, there are so few in-person meetings, it's, it's not even a discussion with the clients, whereas it might have been in the past. We tell them, oh, you know, I'm in this location or that. So I can't, you know, meet in person. I'm going to call or Zoom. Well, now everybody's on Zoom anyway, and they could frankly care less where any of us are. Yeah, I I agree. I've noticed, not with my lovely company, but I have noticed that there's been some resistance, I would say, to for a lot of companies I've seen that other friends work at, this resistance to come into the year 2020 with these things. Because just like you said, it feels really ridiculous if we're going to say someone can't go work from, like you said, the East coast, because they're celebrating a family reunion and they're going to be working on the computer anyway. It's like, why wouldn't we make things a little bit easier for people? That's what I don't understand, but it's, I see it. I see the resistance and I just try and figure out what that's about. And I just, I really can't come to a great conclusion. (laughs) Why? You know, there is someone wiser than me said this, but (laughs) everything is driven by love or fear. And so I think it's what, what are leaders afraid of? They're afraid of a loss of control. They're afraid that working from home means not working, even though we've seen for two years that people are often as are more productive from home, you know, so it's um, something that they've learned that, and if they've learned it for 30, 40 or 50 years, I understand it takes time to unlearn. We've also had more than two years. So I feel like a lot of unlearning has been done, but I think it's a good point, you know, and I I think for people who are in those leadership or management positions, if you're feeling that I would spend some time and ask yourself, you know, what am I afraid of? Or where is that anxiety coming from? You know, what's the story I'm telling myself that says, if people aren't physically in the office or in this city or on this time zone, what is it that you believe is going to happen? And then is there evidence of that? Or is this just, you know, uh, something that you learned and grew up with that's really no longer serving you because things have changed so much over time, over decades. And in the last two years, things have just changed dramatically and employees expect this. You know, I think the wisest leaders I've heard are the ones who are saying, this isn't up to us anymore. This is up to our people. 
And you know what, if we won't give them that flexibility, somebody else is so ready. They're just ready to do it. And so I think you have to really look in the mirror and ask yourself this question of, do I want to hold on to these outdated norms uh, or do I want to keep my people? Yeah, it really, I think is, I know that sounds almost oversimplified, but I do think it does boil down to that. And I love what you said about things coming from love or fear. And I think it is just the fear. It's that fear of, will they still work? Will they be doing this? But you know, what comes to my mind always is if I'm trusting people to do a job, then that is scary to me that the only way you could trust them is if they're right in front of you. I just, that doesn't make any sense to me. So I think if you find yourself in that position of being fearful that someone's not going to do their work, if it's not in front of you in an office, I would argue potentially you've hired the wrong people, or you need to take a good hard look at the way you trust your people. I agree. No, I think that's (laughs) such an important point. And the other thing is we know, I'm sure there's good research to back this up. When you do trust people and allow them to do these things, they're more loyal, they're more committed, they're more productive, they're more effective. And frankly, when our brains are not so frazzled by overwork, we can be creative and we can be innovative. I know for myself, when I you know, go for a walk, I get more of the, the bigger creative ideas, you know, at, at the idea that'll save me. It's not about the hour I lost answering 20 emails, you know, forget it. I can answer 20 emails anytime. It's the creative idea about a new product or service or a partner that, you know, I should be reaching out to. And those things, in fact, you know, make the company so much better. And it's not another hour of answering email or, you know, working on a presentation that's going to take your company leaps and bounds. It's really the creativity and innovation that our brains can't even do that unless we give them the space. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Last thing I wanted to chat with you about before we get to rapid fire round was your book. So your book, I can see it behind you, Female Firebrands. So you talk about it being a solutions oriented guide for dealing with situations that women, unfortunately, most of us have dealt with or know of. And that's things like sexual harassment. That's things like being underpaid for the same job that a man does, being underappreciated in general. The other thing I saw come up the other day that kind of I don't know why I hadn't thought of it before. It had surprised me, but this idea that it's often the younger women who get put on the social committee or things like that and are required to then put in this extra time and work. And I thought to myself, oh my gosh, I was on one of those committees (laughs) and I didn't even realize it, that that was being asked to do more work outside of my scope for nothing in return. So my question for you about all of this and your book is what, what are those big takeaways you really want readers to walk away with when they read it? Yeah, those were all uh, such true examples that probably will resonate with most or all of the women listening. I know I've had each of those experiences The first, I believe it's just recognizing it. It's like you said, you didn't know when you got put on that office or social committee, if you had known, gee, this is something that's called office housework. This is something that's mostly delegated to women. This is something that I could possibly say yes or no to. And this is something that even though it's good for the team is probably not going to advance my career whatsoever you might've had a different discussion or made a different choice or said, gosh, I'm happy to do this for the first quarter. And what if John does it for the next quarter? Right? So I think we have to recognize the inequities, the um, double standards and learn to name them, which is what I'm really excited about. Just there's so much language now about, you know, whether it's office housework or mansplaining or pay inequity, right? Things that you can put your finger on it and realize, okay, this is happening to me. So now that I know, and I know that it's not right or fair or my fault, it's not my fault that I got paid less. It is not my fault that I got overlooked for promotion. It is not my 
fault when someone says something disgusting or inappropriate to me. It shouldn't be happening. And then women can start to make a choice about what to do. Do I personally want to say something in the moment or later or complain to HR or my manager because this shouldn't be happening? Do I want to say, Emily, you know what? In that meeting that we go to every Thursday at three, have you noticed how these two guys always interrupt me? The next time they start to do that, would you mind just kind of putting up your hand and saying, oh, hey, I'd really like to hear Michaela complete her thought. That little act of advocacy that you can do it for me, we're not yelling and being like, guys, stop interrupting, which might feel comfortable to some people, definitely does not feel comfortable for everyone. These, these kind of solutions can just take so much friction out of our workday. And so, yeah, I want people to know what's happening, know it's not your fault, have a choice of solutions. And a solution could be do nothing. One solution might be, yeah, that wasn't appropriate. I'm choosing to say, I'm going to ignore it because I have better things to do. Um, Terry Sitterman, who's in the book, she is an amazing uh, coach and friend of mine. And she tells this story of when a guy made a very inappropriate remark to her. And she just looked at him and said, I'm going to give you 20 seconds to take that back. She didn't complain. She didn't go to HR, but she really put him on notice that he had done something offensive and he paused and apologized and said, oh my gosh, I can't believe I said that. I won't do that again. You, that, you might be like, that's amazing. Or you might be like, I don't, I could never do that. And that's fine. You know, to pick a different solution. But I just think we all need to feel empowered to stand up for ourselves and each other when these things happen. Mm, that is amazing. I'm sure there's tons, tons more of those kind of nuggets in the book. So hopefully everyone is able to read it because I think that's something that any woman who is working can benefit from. Um, because I think to your point, if you don't really understand what those injustices are, it's pretty hard to name them. And then very difficult, obviously, to get a solution if you don't even know what's happening. Yeah. So. Oh, thank you. And one last point on that, I would just say, talk to women who have been in the workforce longer than you, people, you know, friends, mentor, parent, manager, you know, maybe it's by attending some virtual events outside of your own place. Um, there are a lot of, you know, groups and organizations and individuals who speak on these topics. And that was really my goal in writing the book was it was that kind of, gosh, what if I had known some of this stuff 15 or 20 years ago? So, you know, you can learn it now and you will be so much further ahead when you reach, you know, my age and my career stage, you'll be so much further ahead than I was. Yes. And I think kind of circling back to what we talked about in the beginning, you'll be there with a lot less strife, perhaps, because <laughs> you don't need to deal with these things necessarily. I just don't think there's any need for any woman to have to go through this. Yeah. I call it frustration and heartache. And the more you can save yourself, the better. Yes. <laughs> Before we get to the rapid fire round, I want to acknowledge you, Michaela, for the way that you are really going out there and creating the exact environment you want to see in the world and creating that for all these people who work with you and allowing them to feel like they belong somewhere where their needs are really put first, it sounds, which is incredible. Thank you so much. And yeah, I hope that's true. And that should be the legacy of Reverb, you know, just a great place to work where people can be themselves and enjoy their lives, both at work and outside of work. Yes, I love that. So let's get to rapid fire. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. A book that's changed your life. Playing Big by Tara Moore. And if you read it, look for the section on your inner mentor. It will change your life. Adding that to my list. Favorite place you've traveled. You already know it's Costa Rica because I just keep going back. And uh, one day I, I may, I may go back and never come back and <laughs> never return. It's a soul place for you. I love that. Yes. What's a lesson you've learned recently? This is so interesting. I learned, I've, I've heard of this before, but it really hit home with me. The lesson is about exploring polarities. Mm -hmm. So a polarity could be, you know, two things that feel very opposite, but understanding how they work together. So I'll share, you know, an example could be 
let's say that you're a very performance driven organization and someone isn't doing well, but you have a lot of empathy for them. Maybe they've been going through something, you know, difficult or a hard time. And so you're, you're stuck, right? How do I maintain this idea of a high performing organization while being empathetic with this individual who's has some personal struggles? Those are some of the hardest questions. And I think using polarity to help navigate and dissect is, um, I think it's the key. Mm -hmm. Yes. People think that those two opposing ideas can exist at the same time often, I find. And the reality is they usually do come at the same time. So to your point, you need to learn how to kind of navigate them. Yeah. Well, well said better than I said it. (laughs) No, this is my job. I summarize things. (laughs) Right. That's what I do. Name a woman who inspires you. I am going to name Ruchika Tolshian. Ruchika was featured in my book as a female firebrand. She is an advisor to my company. Um, she has written two books. The latest is, I thought I had it. Um, I'm looking for my book, but it's called Inclusion on Purpose. So really some of the most current and best um research and recommendations around increasing diversity, equity, and inclusion at work. And she has been featured not once, but twice on the Brene Brown podcast, which I think is such an achievement. And she's a journalist and she writes for like the, I don't know, the New York times and the Harvard business review. And, and she is one of the kindest people and most generous and just yeah, amazing. And so accomplished. Oh, she sounds like a real powerhouse. I love it. Well, thank you again, Michaela. This has been amazing. And I want to make sure everyone goes and follows along. So where's the best place to find you and where can we get your book? Thank you. So the book, this is the first time I get to share. So we are, we have exhausted the first 4,000 hardcover print run. And so we're moving to soft copy only, which I believe means it will only be available on Amazon. I think I have that right. And we're easy to find on social media. So either myself, Michaela Kiner or Reverb on Instagram, LinkedIn. Yeah. Twitter, a little bit of Twitter, (laughs) all the places. Yes. Yes. (laughs) And the gap year, if you want to find the gap year, which I released uh, about a week ago, it's mygrownupgapyear.com. And there's a blog and you can subscribe and Yeah. If you're thinking about doing some travel or spending some time away, you can learn with me because I'm just publicly doing all my planning and asking and answering all my own questions. That is amazing. Thank you again, Michaela. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you. My pleasure as well. Thanks so much, Emily. Thank you so much for tuning into the Girls Who Run the World podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend who would love it. Leave us a five-star review and hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode. To learn more about Our Gorongosa, head over to OurGorongosa.com and find us on social at OurGorongosa. 